Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. This is the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, I'm talking with Taylor Hatmaker because Elon Musk actually did it and is now the overlord of Twitter. I also talk with Amanda Silberling about YouTuber Mr. Beast's business and why a billion dollar plus valuation for it makes us nervous. I'm also talking about the scoop of the week with Kirsten Korosak, who broke the news that Argo is shutting down. But first, I'll break down the biggest stories in tech. WhatsApp had a lengthy outage this week that affected the service worldwide. That's a huge problem given that WhatsApp serves not just as a messaging platform in many markets, but also as a key piece of communication infrastructure. A number of other internet services also encountered issues on the same day, potentially pointing to a common cause. Things came back online without too much issue, however, and you can read more about this from Manish Singh on TechCrunch. Reports this week emerged that Tesla is under criminal investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice. We reached out to the DOJ, but they declined to comment, and their standard practice is never to confirm or deny if any active investigations are actually underway. The investigation is said to be about the role of Tesla's autopilot software in a number of crashes over the past few years, including some that were fatal. We likely won't know much more about the investigation until the DOJ decides to take some action from its findings, which could include civil or criminal legal proceedings. More on this from my article on TC. First up, I'm talking with Taylor Hatmaker about Elon, Twitter, and where things go from here. Please bear with us. We hopped on a call first thing this morning and had some technical difficulties with Taylor's recording just at the beginning. Hey, Taylor, we're talking about the thing. It happened. What's weird for listeners, I want to give this this a note because listeners will hear this and then they'll hear me talking to Amanda later on and we talk from the past. So the nature of recorded audio is that sometimes things can happen out of sequence. Uh, But me and Taylor are living in the present when Elon Musk is God King of Twitter. What do you think? What a present it is. It's an exciting (laughs) time to be alive. (laughs) So this happened late, late Thursday. I think whether we're considering it PT or ET, our respective time zones, it's, it was late. It came through, I think kind of after the close of business, both time zones, roughly. What, what time was it uh, over there? Like 6 p.m. or so? That sounds right. You can tell me anything. I believe you, though. But yeah, it was definitely after, <laughs> after business hours, which I yeah. think is normal for Musk. I think he just kind of is on his own timeline because he's very wealthy and doesn't have concern about other people's timelines. <laughs> That's right. It was kind of a weird sort of sequence of events, right? Not the way that these things typically go, I think. Uh, usually we find out about these by some kind of disclosure by investor relations or the SEC or something like that. But here we found out through a cascade of like him doing a joke on Twitter and then also later a cacophony of reports from a number of outlets, including TechCrunch alum Kate Conger over at the New York Times and a bunch of others, which we all cite in our in our coverage, but all reporting kind of at the same time that the deal had gone down. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of that, actually. I think Musk is not somebody who goes through official channels. So, you know, yeah, you're not going to look for an SEC filing. Like, it's not going to how it's going to go down. It's going to go down through, like, a tweet and some chaotic fallout that we saw reported yesterday when he just came in and cleaned house of, like, most of the, you know, core top executives. Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, maybe the most shocking part about it was that it was, at the same time, it was in the same beat that, like, he fired how many was it four people the top people it was parag Agarwal, yeah, ceo it was ceo it was the cfo mm-hmm. i think is a particularly bold move yeah that's saying um, something and it was another important executive one of the uh she's really prominent in policy making and decision making there and she works at the legal department um and her name is Vijaya Gaudi. So she's a really well-respected figure within the company. And that that one in particular, even if we expected it 
kind of shows where things are about to go. Yeah, she heads the trust and safety team as well as I think, yeah, you, the legal team probably, I think, falls under her domain, even if she's not the like the actual chief counsel. Well, she used to work as counsel. So she's right. like she's worked and she's represented them in court on some free speech issues, like the actual free speech issues that Musk is like not as concerned with. <laughs> right, right. And then and then the, her report, the chief counsel is also out. Right. So it's uh, that I was like, I saw that. And I did include this in my news roundup. I was like, is this like, is this a Sour Grapes move? Not only because he already has had trouble with the Gade, right? Is that Gade? Gotti. Gotti in past, but he is just getting out of this legal action that he did not enjoy, <laughs> I don't think. And, you know, was it like, I don't, I don't want to say retribution because I don't want to get in any legally actionable place. But hey, who knows? Let, we're just spitballing here. It's a, it's an audio column, let's say. But <laughs> so much is he's just going to rule things with an iron fist and do it his way. I mean, right. he and Prague, like we saw through some, you know, some private communications that were in public in the discovery process. Something interesting we saw through that is Musk messaging with Jack Dorsey. And Dorsey's like, hey, you're about to meet Prague. Like, I hope it goes well. You know, I think they had a Google Hangout. And then, like, you know, there's, like, a beat. And then afterward, he's like, man, I fucking hated that guy. <laughs> you know, he's saying so many words, but he's like, that didn't go well. I don't, you know, it didn't seem like they respected each other. They don't speak the same language. And Dorsey thought they might because they both have engineering backgrounds or whatever. So he just, like, they clash from the get-go. And they've been fighting in court for a long time. Yeah. So that's, I mean, Prague, we expected to go. And Gotti is, like, kind of a different situation. Gotti has taken heat kind of as, like, I think particularly because she's a woman, honestly, if I'm yeah. being perfectly honest, um, as like the, you know, the fall guy for some of Twitter's policy decisions, which are always, you know, difficult choices that are mm -hmm. going to make at least half of people unhappy, especially when it's anything politically charged about politicians, onto moderation enforcement there. And, um, you know, he he kind of like sent his Twitter army after her already. And they like did a bunch of racism at her previously, which was unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, she was really a lightning rod for the the Trump decision, which is unfortunate and probably unfair, too, because, I mean, that was Jack's call in the end. And he kind of, you know, Teflon Jack, he kind of survived that unscathed, basically. Yeah, he's like, I was taking mushrooms on an island. I'm not really <laughs> sure how this all went down. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, anyway, Musk came in and he cleaned house right away, which we both expected. And and it's still shocking. Yeah, I think it's it was bound to be shocking, like, no matter how much you thought it was going to come, because it, it, it lops the head off the organization at a time when it's like, you know, in turmoil already. Right. And mm -hmm. so today is a day, you know, we're all kind of at this point, we're recording Friday morning and we're looking at it and just I don't know about you, but I'm just on tenterhooks. Like what happens next? Like what is what's going to fall apart? What's going to what's Elon going to do? He's been tweeting, but he hasn't been tweeting much except like, unfortunately, like sympathy for some of the Internet's greatest monsters, basically. Like mm. I'm, I'm being a bit hyperbolic, but basically his only activity has been replies to people being like, thank God you're back because I want to do this shitty, horrible thing with Twitter. And the old Twitter rules didn't allow me to do that. And he's like, interesting. I'll take that into consideration. <laughs> That's like, how you know he's considering the issue on a deep intellectual level is he's like, oh, interesting. I haven't heard of that. And that, that gives me a lot of <laughs> a lot of faith in the direction he's going to take this platform. Yeah, yeah. It's uh I mean it's a tense moment for all of us. Some guy's like, I was racist, and then I tried to kick over platform. Interesting. I haven't heard of that issue. Yeah. And he's I gonna erase all the sh erase all the shadow banning, which, you know, okay, well we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, you know, we'll he's see. talking this is the thing. This is the thing about Musk taking over Twitter. Running Twitter is not going to be a fun job. It's not going to be like, no. I'm launching spaceships. I'm making cool cars that make people feel awesome. Like, he'll make it chaotic in his own way. But running a 
Social platform is a slog. It is a slog through regulation. It is a slog through political bullshit across every market in the world. Like, you know, he's going to be dealing with governments. He's going to be dealing with people who are unhappy with his decision, regardless of what they are. And in the midst of that, he has to keep advertisers happy. And advertisers aren't going to be happy if Twitter is a shit show free for all. And he, he like literally said that yesterday, I think. Right. Or not yesterday, this is earlier this week. But he was like, it's not going to be, you know, a whatever, a free-for-all hellscape. hellscape. Yeah. You know? <laughs> he, he like literally promised it was going to be a free-for-all hellscape previously to his, you know, fanboys and the folks who think Twitter has too much content moderation as is. So he's going to be caught in the middle of all this and no one's going to be happy. There's no yeah. way. I mean, it was in many ways, that was like a perfect opening note to his leadership, right? It's like, I'm trying to thread the needle in a way that is absolutely impossible to thread. And I don't think he doesn't know what's coming for him. There's another interesting article Natasha uh, wrote about for us on the site about Thierry Breton from the uh, European Commission. And he, you know, was basically like, -uh, like, remember, we have rules already in place for through the, the DSA, the Digital Services Act, and you have to abide by these. So freedom is bound already. Like your bird is not going to be as free flying as you think it's going to be under penalty of law. And the other neat thing about this from Breton is like, he's got pinned on his profile. If you go through a conversation he had with Musk in, I think May, like in person where he was like, Oh, so I've just explained to you the digital services act. And like, we talked about it and you, you know, what, how do you feel about it? And Musk is like, I think it's great. I think everything you said about it seems a hundred percent in line with how I think. So it's like, that's like everybody he talks to though. He's like, yeah so now the rubber's really gonna hit the road there and yeah i think you're absolutely right it's gonna be very unpleasant we've seen what's weird is he's reversed he's reversed the zuckerberg move or maybe even kind of like the google boys move where it's like oh i got into this thing that i thought was gonna be fun and cool and it ends up being just the messiest possible business to be in, which is social networking, which is YouTube, which is content moderation, right? And it's a business that's not in a good place right now for a number of reasons. No. Advertising is drying up. Nobody is happy with how content moderation works across the board. You know, it's potentially going to introduce liabilities for most other business. I think it's potentially a defense concern. I think this is like an interesting thing Absolutely. We, we we're probably going to dig into. Musk has like vested interest in cozying up to a lot of governments around the world, particularly China. And he's also um, exhibited a closeness with Russia in recent days, which is like alarming to, I'm sure, <laughs> you know, U.S. government officials. Yeah. And he's doing all of that while he's already like a defense contractor. Like, yeah. On Absolutely. a massive scale with SpaceX, right? Yeah, he's so. contracting with governments. He's talking to authoritarian governments that are stated adversaries in the United States. Like, it's going to be a mess. And, you know, his business is, he is leading a number of businesses at the same time as he's leading Twitter. Maybe he'll tap somebody else's CEO, maybe not, but it's going to be him in charge, you know? So how is he going to advocate for his other businesses through Twitter? I, I totally expect to see that. Like, it's hard to imagine if he wouldn't, you know, satisfy the Chinese government, if they're like, hey, can you stop censoring these things or like labeling these things or whatever? He'd be like, well, you know, I'm doing a lot of business in China. It's a really important market for Tesla yeah. or whatever. Yeah, the conflict situation just got much, much murkier. It was murky already, but it yeah. got murkier still. But yeah, Especially think- as a private company, because he's like no longer going to be accountable exactly. in the way the public company is. So he's going to yeah. be doing all this. He's going to be intermixing his businesses and he's going to be like, Still talking to Vladimir Putin for some reason? I don't know. Yeah, there was a report that he already had, I think, Tesla engineers speaking to Twitter engineers, like <laughs> even prior to the close. So, There's something so ominous about that, about the idea of being a Twitter employee and you're just like walking around, you're like, why are all these Tesla employees in the building? It's just like, there's something like a loyalist kind of thing, yeah. you know, that his takeover feels like. 
It feels like watching Succession, honestly. It's like Absolutely. Getting, you know, the people on the one faction sweep through the building. That must have been what it felt like. And it's a real bummer for people who work there who wanted to make the product and yeah. policies good. But I do wonder what their conversation was about, where the Tesla engineers like, well, have you tried tweaking the battery density? And then the, the, Tesla, <laughs> the Twitter ones were like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I'm like, where's the overlap there? I, mean, I guess there's like some fundamentals. It's not like Twitter's probably that complex, like right. an issue technologically, but they're like, I don't know. Let's like, let's tweak this algorithm a little bit. Let's turn it, let's turn it to the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we'll see if anything comes out of that kind of like cross-pollination. Uh, I think, yeah, for me, it was just really, really surprising to see him want to embrace this thing when, you know, Zuckerberg said, I am tired of this thing. I'm going to go work on this face computer and leave me alone. Like, I'll be over here <laughs> in the corner with the face computer because all of this sucks so hard. And Elon kind of did the exact opposite thing. Well, he loves attention. And, you know, Zuckerberg is a bit more, you know, robotic and stilted in the way that he presents himself. He's not super open. He's not, he's the opposite of candid. So in yeah. a lot of ways, he's kind of the anti-Musk. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. So I think uh, we finally have somebody who is a, I don't know, demonstrative, outgoing kind of, I, I think I called him whimsical in an article earlier this year. That was and very I, generous. I thought that was an extremely generous turn of phrase. I didn't mean it. <laughs> I didn't mean it as a compliment necessarily. <laughs> I, I know you didn't. It's like a whimsical. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, for whatever else, it is, it is going to be something that, None of us are going to be able to stop watching, unfortunately. But Taylor, you're always going to be there in the pocket to make sure we're watching in the right ways and not just for the sake of spectacle. So thank you for that. Not promising and also, anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also, please, please don't quit. But yeah, <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> no, I'm not going anywhere. This is free job security. Next, Amanda Silberling and I attempt to answer the age-old question, is Mr. Beast really worth a billion and a half dollars? Hi, Amanda. How's it going? It's going well. I'm very happy to be talking to you about anything but Elon Musk. That's right. We'll be talking about him plenty, I'm sure, for all of the rest of our natural lives, unfortunately. Yeah, it's funny because it's Wednesday and this is going to come out like Friday, Saturday, and we're going to know a lot more then. That's so right. So hello from the past. Hello from the this past was, before This was a, a simpler time. It. Yeah. As, as I'm speaking to you now, Twitter is a publicly traded company. That's right. And uh, everything is great with that and everything on the internet. No, actually, if you recall, yeah. it was bad now, too. It's probably just a little bit worse in the future where you are, but it was still bad now. This is good job security for me in a way. I'm like, you know what? As long as Elon Musk is like doing weird stuff to Twitter, like there's always going to be something for me to write about. That's right. That's right. As long <laughs> as the, as long as technology is messy, we will be here, which it always will be forever and ever. Yeah. So thanks but for that. speaking of uh, something that is not Elon Musk, Mr. Beast. That's right. Mr. Beast, who I think not to stick around on this, but I think Elon is a fan of his. I believe I've seen him reference him or something hmm. in past maybe Probably. not i mean I, I wouldn't be surprised they're both kind of like big personalities but mr beast is not that problematic like right. there are a couple of videos he's done that i've been like eh, was this in poor taste but like as far as huge people on the internet go he's just kind of some guy right and he is indeed some guy which you bring up in your article in that there's probably a lot of people reading uh, who like are only kind of vaguely aware of who he is, and I'm assuming listeners too. I mean, yeah. it took me a long time. He was also already quite, quite, quite famous before he entered into my sphere of understanding or perception or anything like that, right? Yeah, I think that's what's funny about the internet is that 
in more of my universe, it's like, of course you would know who Mr. Beast is. He's the fifth most subscribed YouTuber and the most profitable YouTuber in the US. But then if you think about it of like the average TechCrunch reader probably knows like who is the CEO of Google, but then the average person on the internet might not know that. So I always think it's funny when I write about this kind of stuff and then people in the comments are like, who is this? Yeah, I know. It's definitely not like this is before my time also, but like the old days of television where it's like there's three networks and there's 15 people on those networks and those are the only people anybody knows the end, right? We're Mm -hmm. in a very different world now. (laughs) But Mr. Beast is like definitely, I think think he's gotten into the awareness of a lot more people recently, particularly, you know, he really capitalized on the Squid Game fame and I think that kind of introduced him to a whole new group of people. When he, you know, building on the fame of the Netflix show, created his own YouTube version of it. I don't know how to describe yeah. it exactly. <laughs> yeah, I actually wrote about that last year where he made a recreation of Squid Game, except nobody got killed. Right. Very important point there. <laughs> but I think it's kind of emblematic of his whole YouTube shtick that he built all of the sets from Squid Game, like he tried to copy it very closely. He made 456 costumes because in the show there are 456 competitors. And basically they had to do all the same tasks that were on Squid Game, except nobody died because that would be uh, murder. Imagine. Imagine. (laughs) Yeah. I was about to say, like, imagine the lawsuits. But then you're like, yeah, that's murder. I'm like, yeah, you're right. You're right. And then the person that won got four hundred fifty six thousand dollars. And that's just sort of his deal is he does these videos where he's like, I'm going to sell a house for $1 and show people's reaction and stuff right. like that. He's the spend and spectacle guy is how I kind of think of him in my brain. I'm very stressed out by his business model, but in a way that is fascinating, which is why I think I wrote about it this week when Axios reported that Mr. Beast was trying to raise $150 million at a $1.5 billion valuation. Right. And... I found this really interesting because I think that a lot of people might be really surprised of like, how can a YouTuber be essentially a unicorn? But when you think about it, it's not all that surprising. He's one of the most powerful people on the Internet. And beyond just his videos, he has a hamburger business now. Mm -hmm. He has a snack bar business The amount of money that goes in and out of his bank accounts on a monthly basis must be absolutely insane. Right. And I did do some kind of like comparing to the last time I wrote about him about a year ago, where back then he had just told Colin and Samir, a creator YouTube channel, that he spends four million dollars a month. And then in a more recent article from a month ago, he said that he spends about eight million dollars a month. Mm hmm. So, like, this is a very fast-growing business, and I think that, especially because it's a non-traditional kind of business, the financing of it is so interesting. And I think he's somebody who has frequently said that because his videos cost so much to make, in part because his videos are always like, and then I gave someone $100,000, and that's, you know, that's a line item on the budget. Because of that, he often talks about how his margins are, quote-unquote, razor thin. Yeah. 
in in a perfect world in which we consider venture capital to be a perfect thing with no flaws that is never used in negative ways, this is actually a very good time to get venture capital. Mm -hmm. Like he has a lot of growth potential. He's reinvesting all of his own money back into the business, which puts strain on him to have to constantly make sure that he is continuing to just do the thing. And yeah, and then suddenly it's like, what would happen if you give this guy $150 million and then maybe he doesn't have to like burn himself out so much? Yeah, right. Or maybe he's just going to keep doing it. So, I mean, it is very interesting. There's a lot of stuff here that's like, does it, it strikes me as like, oh yeah, I mean, this seems like a venture backable business in a lot of ways. Like you're talking about growth he's got he's had massive growth and an eight million dollar burn rate is like not even that bad depending on like if he's still actually revenue positive like net positive on revenue which it seems like he is even with thin margins that's pretty good because most of the companies that get this kind of money at this kind of valuation a lot of them aren't making any money at all like they're not even close to being revenue yeah and that's what's interesting too is that i feel like in the tech world it's Really not a problem when you're raising like a seed round, Series A, et cetera, if you're not profitable. Right. I feel like the purpose of they those rounds They don't expect you to be prof- profitable. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like so funny because it's like you're building a company without having a path to profitability. Mm-hmm. But if you're a creator, then you need that path almost immediately because no one is giving like a random comedian at a nightclub $10 million and saying, go make a YouTube channel. Like, right. You have to kind of grind it out for a while because that's just the nature of the business. Yeah. And let alone venture capital, you don't have access to traditional business capital either, right? Because it's not recognized necessarily as a traditional business. Yeah. And I've written a lot about like different companies that are trying to sort of emulate the model of venture capital, but specifically for creators. And Mr. Beast has worked with a lot of those. Like there's this company Spotter where their whole business model is they'll give you Five million dollars. I mean, every deal is different, but just Mm -hmm. as an example, let's say they give you five million dollars and then all of your YouTube back catalog, they earn the ad revenue from that for the next three to five years or something. Right, right. So they're mitigating risk in other ways, because like the biggest risk when it comes to me, if I'm thinking about this with like my venture hat on is like it's one thing. It's one person, really, that you're investing in. Like it's true. He probably has a large organization, just like other popular YouTubers, right? Like MKBHD has a whole studio and there's lots of people that work over there, right? But like in the end, it's the person, right? And then, so I guess you could kind of defray that by arguing like, oh, it's similar. Most, especially early stage investments are in founders. And so, and not in ideas or companies, right? So you're putting a lot of risk into one person there too. I think it's just to a different degree. And then uh, the other concerns I would have are like, Okay, the scale is is it venture is venture scale possible with like an audience growth mechanism? And the last one, I'm just going to lay them all out before I lose them in my brain, but the last one would be he's renting all of his users. All of his users are living on a, on platforms he rents. He doesn't own any of them, right? Unless and it's possible because other people have done this. He's built his own kind of like fan app or network or something, right? But like I don't think that he Mr. has. Mr. Beast Truth Social. Right, exactly. Soon. No, <laughs> but nobody uses Truth Social. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> like those story. would all be things that I'd be like, oh, like, I don't know. I mean, I get it on a surface glance, but then I think once you start like digging away at the patina, it's like, does this make any sense? But it seems like 
it does make enough sense to the people who put money in, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel like if I were a venture a venture capitalist, which I, I think I'm one of the most unlikely to make the TC to VC chump, given my uh, thoughts about capitalism. However, if I were... Hey, like, Amanda, you never know. <laughs> Just hang around I for do, a few years. <laughs> I do never know. But I feel like I would feel more comfortable investing in Mr. Beast than like a SaaS startup. Mm. Right. But just because maybe that's just because this is where my expertise is. And I understand like Mr. Beast is a force to be reckoned with. And I wouldn't be surprised if in five years he's more relevant than he is now. Actually, I don't know. Hmm. Now that I think about it, the timeline on YouTube fame is kind of difficult. But I think when we're talking about this class of creators like the Mr. Beasts, the MKBHD, the Charlie D'Amelio's of the world, like they have eclipsed the typical life cycle of a creator. Like That's right. But I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of companies on a smaller scale have been thinking about how do you invest in a creator? And then now to see the VC world getting into it in this way is a pretty logical extension. And it's also not as though he's the first creator to get a VC investment. No, that's right. But I do think he's a good like test case, right? Like it's like if this one goes, well, it could become the model. I think for a lot yeah. of other people, I should clarify, we don't actually know if anyone's given him any money yet, right? Like he's seeking 150 million, presumably some of that is committed or whatever, mm-hmm. or, or right. I don't think we know yet whether. They're- no, this was just kind of a rumor of right. just, yeah, Mr. Beast is trying to get some VC money. But we there is lots to recommend it, right? So like I, be, I made the, the bear case, but your point is well taken too. Like there's people... There's a whole group of new investors for whom this is like where they grew up media wise. Right. And it's like this makes sense to them and they live and breathe it. And so they're probably way more comfortable than that than, you know, spinning up a new Docker instance or application. I don't even know the, what that means because I yeah. should. But like that's the B2B stuff. Right. That's the enterprise stuff. But like tons and tons of people are like, I don't know what that is, but this I understand. Right. And I get and I get it. And the fundamentals are there. So and this also isn't just Mr. Beast, the YouTuber. This is like he's also running other food businesses, which I always wonder. It feels like whenever creators make side businesses, they pick the least profitable businesses. Like right. Starting a restaurant is really hard. Yeah, and that actually Brings me to another point of, I think, something that you have to consider more so with funding creators than funding individual founders is that these people's public persona is very deeply tied to their financial value. So another huge YouTuber, David Dobrik, had a ton of scandals. He was so in pursuit of trying to be more and more famous and get more and more views that he did these very dangerous stunts and one of them resulted in one of his friends needing to get like 10 surgeries because it just, it's a mess. Another thing that you can read about on techcrunch.com. But like with something like that, like David Dobrik's whole business has just been completely torn down and for good reason, because he made a series of very bad, irresponsible choices. But at the same time, then I saw an Instagram post yesterday that he just opened a pizza shop in California. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Damn, you can like almost kill your best friend and still open a pizza shop. That's a uh, cancel culture, I guess, for you. Right. Well, you can open it, but can it stay open? I think the yeah. other example, too, that's like really fresh that seems to back you up is Kanye West. Like Kanye West yeah. 
valuation as an individual is is plummeting. It continues to plummet as we're recording yeah. this, right? So you see something like that, and then you probably think twice about like, oh, do I want to pin all this money to someone who is like eminently cancelable, right? Like mm-hmm. it's like not that I'm saying I have any reason to believe Mr. Bees will be canceled, but if he is, that all goes away in an instant, basically, right? I mean, I hope not. I mean, I don't know. I feel like every anecdote I've heard about people meeting him or running into him is that he's literally just some guy. So, I mean, I hope he's just some normal guy who isn't hiding any horrible skeletons in his closet. But also, it's the universe. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's as good a place to end as any. <laughs> I think we should end more articles that way. It's the universe you never know. (laughs) (laughs) Next, I talk with Kirsten Korosek about her scoop that Argo AI is shutting down. Hello, Kirsten. How's it going? Pretty good. Just recovering from yesterday. Yeah, so busy day yesterday for a lot of things, but I think most notably, especially for the purposes of this conversation, but I think in general, actually, was... Argo AI. Do you want to tell us what happened with Argo AI on Wednesday? Sure. So the TLDR is that Argo is shutting down, but it's a much bigger story than that. And kind of an unbelievable one because of all the companies that I've been watching in the AV space, I completely missed the fact that Argo was even at you know the brink of potentially shutting down. Right. And that's like important to, I think, emphasize is that a lot of times we see these kind of coming off in the distance, maybe quite a ways in advance, right? There are signs, there are weaknesses, and you kind of see it. I mean, the example that comes to mind, which is an absurd version of this, is Faraday Future, right? Like it's essentially been on life support since day one. But like this one, you were pretty confident they were doing everything right and had a lot. And and not just you, I mean, everyone. Yeah. And like... Actually, I hadn't even thought about the Faraday Future thing, which, to be clear, is not developing autonomous vehicles and is trying, and I'm air quoting this, to make a single EV, and yet it still survives. It's like, how in this (laughs) world, in what world (laughs) does Faraday Future still exist? And then a 2,000-person company, which major backing, $2.6 or $2.7 billion of backing, and also in-kind backing that pushes it up beyond three billion mark from Volkswagen and Ford fold. Like in what world do we live in? Does that happen? But yeah, here we are. Yeah, here we are indeed. So you scooped this a couple hours, I want to say a few hours before Ford kind of acknowledged it in their earnings, right? Right. And it seemed like that was when they planned to kind of break the news generally. But luckily you are an amazing intrepid reporter. We got the story (laughs) out before that. So do you want to tell us some of the details of like what's involved now Is it gone away entirely? Does it survive in some form? And what are the implications for autonomous driving when it comes to, I mean, Ford and and also potentially Volkswagen? You just asked me like seven questions, but... I did, yes. So the very quick backstory is I actually got a tip about this that seemed completely outlandish because it was, the wording was Argo's going bankrupt. And this was last week. It seemed crazy. It didn't seem real. And I kind of actually ignored it for about a day. And then I started picking at the edges of it and picking at the edges and sort of just talking to different people and have you heard anything and not even trying to bring up Argo's name necessarily. Or And I knew Ford's earning was coming up. So I thought, mm, I wonder if something will happen there. And really, the sort of chips began to fall in terms of getting information late Tuesday into Wednesday morning. And then as soon as that all hands happened, 
really like I was getting it from multiple people mm. and who were able to confirm everything. So what happened at the all hands was, and this is the interesting background, everything tells me based on what people were telling me that it seems like negotiations with Ford and VW were happening until the last minute. Like mm, it okay. wasn't necessary. And I think that's why it stayed quiet for so long was because there was not anyone at a lower level that was hearing information until Wednesday morning. So it was a conversation among kind of the most senior Mm -hmm. executives. Mm -hmm. And then, so probably whatever, like five people or however many people knew that this was happening at all, or maybe people on the finance team. But Yeah, I would say a couple dozen people probably. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is someone's talking a little loud at a restaurant. You know, like if you're in Silicon Valley or if you're in Pittsburgh, it's kind of like people pick up on conversation and things, you know, come down to me. So the negotiations seem to be like, this is very fluid and it still is very fluid. And so I think it's really important people understand this. Argo is shutting down. So as a company, as it existed yesterday, will no longer exist. That 2000 or so global workforce, some, and it's not clear what percentage and what is some, will be absorbed into either Ford or VW. VW to me seems much more clear cut because really when VW came in with their backing, they folded their existing autonomous vehicle unit into Argo. And so Mm -hmm. these are German-based people. So I could see those folks just going back into VW. Ford is a bit different because Argo really wasn't necessarily pulling people from Ford and bringing them into Argo, although I'm sure there are instances of that but really pulling from outside the tech world, like talented people in machine learning and talented people from robotics, from CMU community, because originally their start came from Pittsburgh. So what happens to those people is unclear. I do know that they pretty much got the best, I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but a very good severance package. So they're like everyone, regardless of whether they ultimately are laid off or not, are going to get two bonuses. Hmm. Plus, the people who are laid off get severance, like a termination pay, and insurance. So sources, multiple people use the term generous. So it still doesn't take the sting out, but like that's what's happening. It seems like the founders that maybe that was part of the negotiating and just like trying to get the best deal because they couldn't control anything else. Yeah. It is unclear whether the two founders are going to go to Ford or go do their own thing. And to me, the biggest question is the technology. They've been working on this since they were in stealth in 2016. They came out of stealth in 2017 with the funding from Ford. Five years of tech. Also, a full LiDAR unit Mm -hmm. existing within the company. What happens to all these assets? Who gets them? Presumably Ford? I don't know. Right. So what I'm taking from that is there's still a lot to report on this, and I'm sure you're already engaged in that process. So we'll definitely keep an eye out for more. But I do, like, I'm so curious about your thoughts around the statements then that Ford CEO made on the earnings call and kind of the positioning of this. What is your takeaway from that? Like, what is your takeaway about like why Ford decided now was the time to pull the plug or to, you know, if it's not that dire, like reevaluate and reform its approach? Right. There's a few things at play here. And, you know, I think that that's the important thing for our audience to consider is that I'm a big believer in that one truth doesn't necessarily mean that it negates or 
is a validation of the opposite. Right. Like two truths can exist in a scenario. And so I think that that's this scenario. I think that Ford is a publicly traded company and it has been, along with GM and others, been chasing this, how do we make more money beyond the selling, financing, and servicing of vehicles? Mm-hmm. And they've been trying and experimenting on this for a long time. I think that there was, in 2016, 2017, a lot that people didn't know, but they jumped all in with some pretty big bets and felt committed to that. And these companies were making progress. However, one thing that wasn't ever clear was the business model. Right. So there's the technical issue. There's the just not knowing when they jumped in, like things have changed. There's just being beholden to shareholders and looking for near-term capital gains. And this is a big long-term play. And then finally, I think the biggest thing is, how do we even make money on this? And Mm -hmm. that was never figured out. Like, they never figured out, like, fine, you get the technical down. Doesn't guarantee a business. Just because you can get a vehicle to navigate the world does not mean you can make money off of that. And ride hailing is a perfect example of that. Ride hailing has struggled for years with human drivers in a fairly straightforward business model and has struggled to make gap profitability. They've made adjusted profitability. So I think all those factors. To me, what's really interesting from the earnings call was who might be behind this. So typically on Ford's earnings calls are pretty straightforward. It's not like listening to a Tesla earnings call where you know you're what's going to happen next. Yeah, you it's can, much more uh, stayed and predictable. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. And usually it's Jim Farley and then, you know, like the CFO. But this time they had Doug Field on and Doug Field on quite a bit. And Doug Field was at Ford, Apple, Tesla, Apple, Ford. And I haven't heard anything from him until this earnings call. Mm. And my gut tells me that not only is he clearly directing this initiative, but his opinion matters to Jim Farley. I think that they looked at all the things and then they also consider the fact that Argo was having trouble getting any other outside investors. So Ford's like, okay, it's going to be up to Ford and VW to continue to sink money in this. And, oh, look what's happening over here. ADAS, Advanced Driver Assistance Systems, we can put in vehicles now, we can charge for them now, and we can make money off of it now. Yeah. The business model solved. And so I think that that was, to me, what was really interesting is I'm sure that they are considering this and thinking about this for a while, but it seems to have essentially come down over the last one to two quarters that this decision was made in the last three to six months. Yeah. I mean... I would imagine global economic conditions also played a role in this, right? They're looking mm. at like, oh, this and like, yes, you're right. Like, we're going to be the ones putting the bill for this for the foreseeable future. And that includes, let's say, the next five years of economic recession or whatever you want to call it, right? Right. So that's that's definitely going to affect the math. I did think it was interesting that they kind of talked about like, oh, we can leave this to third parties. So it's yes. just a reallocation of risk, right? It's like, let's yeah. move this out from under our umbrella. It's a bet, though. Right? right. Like it is a bet. Base, it's the bet is we'll turn to a company like Mobileye, which, by the way, just had their IPO yesterday. And we should a successful IPO. A rare, a rare success. Yeah. 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 And I interviewed actually Amnon Shashua, who founded Mobileye. And he's really bullish on, he's like, listen, we didn't go public because we're doing the typical IPO where we have to raise a bunch of capital. He's like, we make money. He's like, this is strategic. And, you know, he's going to say what he's going to say because it's his IPO day. (laughs) But I think that he is, he believes that and that he sees 
ADAS continuing to get better. And he is also a big believer in full autonomous vehicle technology. And he's a supplier or mobilizes suppliers. So I don't know if Ford's going to work with them. But point being is that Ford no longer is like, we need to be the leader in this. In the AV world, we can be a fast follower. We can Mm -hmm. turn to the supplier market. The other thing is, is that against the backdrop of inflation and supply chain constraints and all this other stuff, Ford and other automakers are also all putting a huge bet and a ton of resources into shifting their entire portfolios to EVs. And so I think that they had to also make a choice. They're like, all right, EVs, software, battery production, like onshoring battery production, onshoring manufacturing, like all this is huge capital costs. And so I also think that they like, had to kind of choose. I don't think that they could do both. The sad thing is, is that I think that Argo of all the companies out there, or many of the companies, had a really good safety approach. They were smart. They seemed to have a good company culture. And this isn't coming from, by the way, I should acknowledge, like my podcast co-host worked at Argo. I did not get the tip from him. Right. In fact, he was like, would not talk to me about it. And We've always had a pretty firm line. It was validated in the last mm-hmm. 24 hours. But not even just from him, but from others, other sources, I've always heard that they had a good company culture and that their tech was moving along. But, you know, it's always hard to know unless you're inside the company and you're the person who's actually building out the self-driving system to say whether it truly was like ahead of or at the front of the pack. I can only say what other people were telling me since yeah. I don't work at the company. I did want, I think you've already kind of uh, hinted at it, but I do want to give you the chance because I wrote a column that was kind of like partially purposefully inflammatory, which I do address at the top saying, I don't think that self-driving car is like a realistic goal anymore for probably our natural lifetimes, but I don't know what, whatever, like a time frame that matters to most people alive and reading this right now. But right. you are obviously free to disagree. That's the beauty of TechCrunch. <laughs> I think you do. I do a little Um, bit, and my only thought is this. The failure of Argo doesn't necessarily automatically validate the opposite course, which is the level two or level three conditional autonomy. It doesn't, one truth doesn't necessarily like validate or negate the other side. You can have two truths. Yeah. So my feeling is that while AVs are hard and really when you start to think about it, like we've seen consolidation in the marketplace for a long time and this is going to continue to happen. But I would disagree on that. I do think that we will see like the robotaxi model happen in your and our lifetimes. First of all, we're not that old. So like, let's consider that for a second. <laughs> like, we're not like 75 or 80. That's okay? true. But, and a lot has happened uh, in the past, you know, yes. a few decades. So, so. I do think that you're going to see it in very conditional environments But turning to the level two, level three, I think that there's a lot of risk there still. Because first of all, there is no regulation around ADAS systems, actually. As much as Elon loves to say that full self-driving will become like a thing once regulators weigh in, there is no federal regulation around ADAS systems in vehicles. Just not. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that as more companies like Ford and GM, Tesla and others push the bounds of automated functions within an ADAS system that regulators are already looking at it and will weigh in. And so I do think that there is a risk there. Also, the whole conditional autonomy thing is very difficult. Like Mm -hmm. this should not be at all ignored. 
conditional autonomy for those in the audience. It's like, hey, we're going to take over driving for you, but you have to stay in the loop just long enough because there's going to be a handoff maybe when you're getting off a highway or maybe in certain conditions, whatever it is. And you can't be like passed out in the backseat of your car. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to have enough time to cue the driver to wake them up and have them be cognitively aware and then take over. So that's hard. Yeah. How do you deal with liability? (laughs) How do you deal with the technology? There's a lot of opportunities there too, but like, how do you cue the driver? How do you ensure that they are paying attention? Like there is a lot of unanswered questions that I don't think is just so simple as some people think. So that's my disagreement with like slight disagreement with your Column. Yeah. No, I didn't specifically address the ADAS stuff in detail, but I think it's worth, I think that's a great area of exploration for you and for us and for our coverage going forward, because I agree with you on that fully, right? Like I think I use Nissan's ProPilot thing and you can tell that it's like they're in this weird position where automakers are generally conservative when it comes to safety because they have a good reason to be like in terms of the falling afoul of the public or regulators or whatever. But they're also now in an arms race, in effect, for these systems, right? Like it seems to be an area where companies are putting a lot in terms of marketing differentiation. So there's a lot of importance on that in terms of why buy this car versus the other. So they're like, on the one hand, we should be conservative. On the other hand, we need to ride right up against the edge so that people are like, this is the one that I want because it lets me like kind of off when I'm driving on the highway or whatever, right? Right. And that's what like where Tesla has been really brilliant in a lot of this, irresponsible, but brilliant in that, you know, GM, when they put out Super Cruise, which is actually a hands-off system, Mm -hmm. is super restrictive where you could, first of all, you could only get it in one vehicle. You could only put it on certain highways. Tesla was like, we trust people. Here you go. Use it anywhere. And you could game the system super easily. There wasn't a driver monitoring system. The driver monitoring system was essentially a torque sensor in the steering wheel. Like you could, I'm not going to say help. Anyone can look it up on the internet, but you could like using a device in your house, you could kind of like fake it. So, you know, there's two different approaches. The thing to also remember with automakers is that do you, do you market these as safety or as convenience, mm. because safety right. is like automatic emergency braking. That is a very different thing, by the way, than being able to do adaptive cruise control, which is like the distance following distance between a vehicle. Distance keeping and lane keeping. One yeah. is convenience, one is safety. And so how do automakers get around that? Because if you start marketing on safety, you better believe a lot more scrutiny. And better guarantee. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and that it, it has to work at all times. Yeah. And so why not maybe augment AEB and make that even better right. through sensors or through machine learning, like a software and perception sensors. So for example, like a LiDAR or something like that, or better cameras. Why not do that instead of all this other things, which by the way, have like varying functionality. Just because something is level two, I think this is important, or level three, that is not a validation of how well it works. Mm-hmm. It just is the promised function. Yeah, yeah. So it's not a grade, and people often no, mistake it. No, it's not it a grade. It's not that. like yeah. you could be a failure at L two, right? Or but L3. you're still in the band of the technical definition of the exactly, thing, right? exactly. So it's really going to be a fascinating time, and we'll see how automakers try to navigate this. But with now the modernization of new vehicles and how complex they've become, I have no doubt that automakers will waste zero time trying to capitalize on this and make money. Yeah, for sure. 
Well, that's a good place to end. Automaker's going to try to make money, which is a conclusion no one has ever reached before. (laughs) No, just joking. We put a lot into that, a lot of subtlety, and I appreciate your perspective as always, Kirsten. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I guess the big question is, where do the startups come in? And are they now going to contribute in a second or third or fourth wave on the automated vehicle technology front? And so I'm really excited to see what happens there. Great. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. Also, TC Sessions Crypto is happening November 17th in Miami. So go get your tickets for that and we'll see you there. Be sure to check out all the other TC podcasts, Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. And we'll be back next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.